Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, uh, the second part of our coverage of the World Cup of Gods 2021, which was running all last week on Twitter. Uh, In the first episode, if you listen to that, you'll know that we talked about the group matches. Um, We discussed the gods that got knocked out. So that was uh, Moloch, Chippy Totek, Ishtar, Bridget, Augustus Caesar, Loki, Kibale, and very sadly, Prince Philip. Um, In today's episode, we're going to go through the quarterfinals, the semifinals, and then the final. Uh, And with me is my co-presenter, co-sports analyst, Dominic Sandbrook. Saints and Greavesy of... uh, of, Saints um, and Greavy of of, uh, World Cup divine sport. Um, And so, Dominic, moving into the the quarterfinals, we had Zeus against Athena, Mithras against Dionysus, Anubis against Isis, Apollo against Odin, talking points around all of them. Shall we focus in on the familial clash that was Zeus against Athena? So father and daughter. What was your take yes. on that? So I thought Athena was going to win uh, that, that particular tie. And of course she did. She is born from Zeus's head. So as yep. Jonathan Wilson said in his preview, she'd given him a headache in the past and um, she did so again. The funny thing is, you know, with Zeus, a lot of people said at the beginning, well, Zeus will win it because he's probably the most... Alpha male. Yeah, it's the most famous, isn't he? He's the god that everybody knows. But I find Zeus quite boring. Do you? I do. There's not... He doesn't... He's, he's always not, plunging he's always, down. Yes. He's, he's 150 always, affairs. Yeah, exactly. He's his his sort of modus operandi is he transforms himself into you know bull An animal animal or something, and impregnates somebody, and then just goes back to Olympus again to face the wrath of Hera. But ultimately, that I find that quite a repetitive story. Um, and and he's not to me Zeus doesn't seem to have some of the com- the weird complexity of some of the gods we discussed on the last podcast. So we talked about Kibale, for example, and nearly had a strokes brought on by hysterics but with zeus i mean zeus seems to be quite a humorless figure do you think that's fair tom i i I think i think i'm being too harsh turning yourself into a swan or a bull or i mean i mean it's faintly sinister Uh, i mean it's it's pervy in the the age of me too it's boring in the age of me too Maybe Zeus. Oh, I mean, Zeus would be massively cancelled. But yeah. but but he'd also be cancelled as as a kind of prime patriarch because he's the model of an Indo Indo European sky god. Yeah, um, an all father, so, isn't he? I mean, he's he's the, the all father. But he's so so his name uh, Zeus Pater, um, sky father. Yeah, you still get you know the full the full title in Jupiter, uh, and you you get it in Sanskrit too apparently. Um, so. He knocks off the, the patter bit, the father bit, it just becomes used. But he's absolutely the embodiment of of this, the god of the sky who rules the universe. Let's talk about Zeus and Jupiter a little bit, because he's a good opportunity to talk about. People generally think of the Greek and Roman gods as identical, don't they? But is that is that wrong? So, so Zeus is the classic example. Zeus and Jupiter, they basically have the same name. So they clearly reflect Indo-European traditions that have yeah. been brought to Greece and Italy respectively. 
Um, by and large, the, the Roman gods are less fleshed out than the Greek ones, because the Greek ones are fleshed out by Homer, first yeah. of all, and then the, by the tragedians. Though interestingly, Zeus is the only kind of major Greek god who doesn't appear on the, the tragic stage. So that's a kind of measure of, of, I think, of his ultimate significance, that he can contain entirety in a way that, that the other gods can't. But on the, on the Roman thing, the Roman gods, by and large, are less detailed. But when the Romans annex Greece, when they, and even before that, when they're annexing the Greek states in, um, in, in Italy, you know, Greece is the, the cultural trendsetter. And so yeah. inevitably, the Romans kind of pair up their gods with, with the Greek gods. But, you know, right the way through into the, the imperial period, Jupiter has, has a role and a significance and a status that is distinctive within Rome that owes nothing really to Zeus. And what is that then? What's that status it's, that's different from Zeus? Well, his, his, so his temple on the Capitol is the, the most significant temple in Rome. And it's where the most significant annual ritual practices are taking place that help to maintain the spiritual health of Rome. Yeah. Um, and that's incredibly important. So every year when the consuls are elected, they go up to the Capitol and the auguries are taken in front of Jupiter's temple. Uh, that has nothing to do with the stories that are told in Greece about Zeus, although obviously they're conflated. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think Jupiter is properly boring in that, in the sense that you, you know, he is quite stiff. And yes. <laughs> where I don't think Zeus is boring. I mean, he, you know, he's thunderbolts. He's the only guy who can handle thunderbolts. Yeah. So he's got weapons true. of mass destruction. He's sleeping around with everybody. He's a bull. Um, he's an eagle. You know, he's, he's an oak. He's got all these children. I mean, so, so, you know, Athena and Apollo, both contestants in this World Cup, are his children. And then he's got all the heroes and he's got but Helen. Is, Helen of Troy he, is his daughter. Is, the most is he almost too, too powerful, though? Is he, is he so powerful that that makes him a little bit boring, do you think? Well, what happened? I mean, it's, it, it's an interesting question that it could be argued that there is a kind of monotheistic trend within polytheism. That yeah. in a sense, it become what ultimately happens is that, uh, and you see this in India as well, is that God's are simultaneously worshipped as individuals, but ultimately come to be seen as expressions of the, of, the, of the one kind of expression of divinity. And in the Greek world, that can only be Zeus. He's the only God who can play that role. Who can contain multitudes. Kind can of contain multitudes. Way. So I think, I, I mean, I think he's, he's clearly a, an alpha male, a big player, um, yeah. but perhaps just not his This year. is not, you know, 21st century is not his time then, is it? It's not really? his time, is it? No. Um, all right. Pa- patriarchal harasser of women is you know never going to win the people assumed he was going to win um and for that reason they he was never going to because yeah. he was the kind of person who would have won in 1980 yeah. but yeah. wasn't going to win in 2021 so exit use uh and then we had i thought a very interesting clash probably a bit more of a walkover than i was expecting mithras against dionysus now mithras he's a fascinating god i think i think he's incredibly boring well, this is, this is very strange because we completely disagree on this. Why I think do you think he's whole... interesting? Because he's so mysterious, and also because he's sort of a bit of a Rotary Club character. I like that. But I, I like that aspect. Of... <laughs> <laughs> there speaks a man who's written yeah. histories of Britain in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, I see yeah, him as a very nineteen seventies god. He's a very nineteen seventies god. <laughs> he is. You can imagine him in a sitcom. Yeah, who's coming for supper? Ding dong! Oh, it's Mithras. You know, in the you know in the, in the good life. <laughs> Yes. The people who live next door, um, uh, Paul Eddington and Penelope Keith, Dionysus. they're definitely they're, members uh, of a. They're yeah. definitely members of a Mithras sort of, aren't they? Um, Penelope Keith. He's the, he's the god of civil servants, basically. If you're a low-ranking yeah. civil servant or an aspiring Roman officer, 
Yeah, you go to... So let's let's explain what we mean for those people who think we've just gone mad. So okay. Mithras, he, he, does he or does he not come from Iran, from Persia? It's generally seemed that he does because there's a kind of um, a large number of a swirl of gods that sound a bit like Mithras. So there is um, a, an Indian god called Mitra, who's yeah. god of the skies. Um, there's an, a Persian god called Mithra, who likewise ends up the god of the skies. And they essentially, um, a bit like Jupiter and Zeus, you know, again, this is the, these are Indo-European gods in Sanskrit and in Persian. They essentially they're the same. Um, right. And then what's the relationship of Mithras to that? Um, because if Mithra, the Persian god, and Mithras, the Roman god, are the same, then obviously his ultimate origins is Persia. I, I think um, that basically Mithras is a Roman invention. Um, and I That's think what it, some historians think now, isn't it? That yeah. he's, that, that, that there's a tenuous link with the East, but actually he's really a god for and created in Rome. And the, the Romans have a deep prejudice against upstart cults. So that's why they're perfectly happy to tolerate, for instance, Jewish worship because it's authentically ancient, even though the Romans see it as weird. But they regard Christianity as beyond the pale because it's it's of recent origin. So I think that um, the Mithras cult, it, it's astrologically centered. It's about um, the tracking of the, the, the heavens. But because um, the, the, the people who are developing it don't want it to look like it's an upstart cult, they essentially kind of identify it with Persia, which gives it a, you know, a sense that it's venerable and ancient and yeah sense of a pattern of kind of authenticity yeah. and so basically the way it works is there are these places called mithraeums which are generally i think underground aren't they yeah. they're sort of you go to a mithraeum and you generally tend to be invited to go if you're a you've joined the roman army you're an officer in the roman army or you're a bureaucrat or something and you're trying to make your way in the world you get invited by a colleague come to the mithraeum on friday night or whenever it is i don't know when it put is. on a mask yeah, you go to them, and and there's um roll up a guy's leg. It's that kind of stuff. There's a there's a sculpture often of a god killing a bull. Yeah, that's always found there. There's also a, a sculpture that nobody's ever been able to explain of a man with a lion's head. Um, people don't know where that fits in, but it does. And you go and you have a banquet, and you sort of meet and greet, you know, middle managers and other, <laughs> exactly. you know, cu- coming men in the in the room. It's it's men only, um, yeah. like the Freemasons. Yeah, yeah. and. It's. I mean, there's an argument, isn't there, among historians that one reason why, you know, it, it's got a ceiling, it's got an inbuilt ceiling in terms of numbers because it's a cult for sort of middle class kind of, you know, aspiring bureaucratic kind of people. And it has levels. That, that means, yes, and there's gradations, there's initiation, yeah. there's sort of, and because of that, that means it's never going to become a mass market cult like Christianity. Yeah. which is for the common man. Is that right? Well, there's often this thing that, that it, you know, if the world hadn't become Christian, it would be Mithraic, but it, it wouldn't. For because, it, because it was too much like the Rotary Club, basically. Because it's that, too much like the Rotary Club, exactly. But it was very successful. So there's a, there's a Mithraeum in, uh, that was found in London that for a long time they kind of put it with crazy paving in the middle of the city. Um, right. And now there's, it's beneath the new Bloomberg building. It's really good. Strongly recommend it. And can you go um, and see it? Yeah, you can. Yeah, oh, nice. they've, set it up, they've done it really well, and they they've kind of um, they use light to show. So you've got what does remain, the stones, and then they they use light to show you um, what it would what it might have looked like. And also, there's a very atmospheric one on Hadrian's Wall. Just and it's so it's associated a lot with the army, isn't it? The Roman yeah. army. Yeah, so I that's mean, why the one on Hadrian's Wall is there. But I think he's, I think Mithras is boring. I can't basically. believe people haven't brought it back. I think it should come back. I think it's like a great. Um, <laughs> I mean, if there's a room for the Masons and the Rotary Club, I don't see why there isn't room for Mithras as well, for Mithraeums. 
Oh. I mean, it just is a more exotic version of masonry. Anyway, uh, Muthras did crash out. He was beaten by Dionysus. So people clearly prefer wine drinking to bull killing. Yes. Um, which is sad. right. Now um, we come to probably the, yeah, I mean, this was, the, this match was the huge talking point on Twitter, wasn't it? Anubis against Isis. So what we actually didn't mention last time was that Lockie had only lost um, by the slimmest of margins to the Anubis. barest of margins. I mean, he'd lost by like three votes or something because it was 50-50 in the percentages. But Anubis clearly had won, you know, a couple more votes. So Anubis had been through this incredibly exacting round against Lockie and then he's up against Isis. So another ancient Egyptian uh, an ancient Egyptian goddess, a huge figure. And this was, again, a very tight... Anubis got an early lead, didn't he? And then, thanks to your efforts, subverting the competition and corrupting the, the principles of the tournament, I, um, Isis won a very narrow and controversial victory. I just felt that it would be better for the sport <laughs> to have the Queen of the Heavens in the semifinals than a, than a dog. I mean, you know, I've got well, first of all, he's not a dogs. dog. Nothing he's not against... a dog. You clearly no, do have something against dogs because you're a cat person, as is well known. Um, um, well, he's not, but he's not necessarily a jackal. Because jackals are golden and he's black. No, he's a golden wolf. He's a gold. He's been reclassified, I think, as a wolf, as a sort of. Uh, so the jackal is, is not right. So I know a bit about Anubis because I made an Anubis costume, okay, as give, listeners will know. Give, uh, give us Anubis. Then. Tell us uh, why you should have won. Well, he, used, he had a great name originally. He was Wep Wawet. Which I think <laughs> you can imagine the chance from the he's black the stands he's black uh, yes like so a the color the color of death and also yes. the color of the soil the fertile soil of the Nile yep. um, so he's linked to regeneration uh, supposedly I read that religious sort of historians believe that um, the Egyptians adopted him because wild dogs were digging up their corpses so that it was obvious you'd need a dog like protector. To, to ward off the wild dogs. This is one theory. Anyway, he begins as the son of Ra, then he evolves into the son of Osiris in the way that Egyptian gods did evolve over yes. the course of Egyptian history. And Osiris, um, one of the great gods, married to his sister Isis. Yes, so he's up against Isis, obviously. Um, and Anubis, basically, I'll tell you what he is, Tom. He's a psychopomp. Yes, a he word, is. A word that I didn't know until yes. this morning existed. I, a spiritual I, I, butler. Yeah, he's present when you di- when when you die. You're, the psychopomp is the god who accompanies you to the underworld. He doesn't judge you. You know, he doesn't give you a hard time. So, it, what he is, he is in a tradition that includes Hermes, yep. Saint Peter, and DCI Gene Hunt. In, ah, yes. In uh, Life on Mars and Ashes yeah. to Ashes. So Gene Hunt is Anubis. And I think that's another reason why Anubis should have won the entire tournament, because Gene Hunt's a great character for those people who've seen Life on Mars. And Anubis is basically the Egyptian Gene Hunt, because Gene Hunt, um, <laughs> you know, welcomes 1970s British policemen into purgatory, doesn't he? And I, then... I'm so impressed with your ability to, to, to get a discussion of 1970s policing yeah, yeah. into a podcast on ancient gods. It's great. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. So anyway, all this is why Anubis is such an interesting figure. The, the sad thing about Anubis is he doesn't. There's no stories attached to him. Well, there is, isn't there? Because so he, in the kind of the more recent stories about him, by recent, more recent, yeah, like, kind of me. When you say more recent, three thousand years ago, yeah. <laughs> um, he is the um, 
the child so osiris is married to isis and um their sister nephthys is married to seth who is right. the kind of i suppose the loki really. he's the baddie isn't he? he's, yeah. he's the baddie yeah. who who then kills osiris but uh, osiris prior to this has um had sex with nephthys and give an and anubis is the result of this with his daughter is that no his sister oh his sister sorry yes i've got confused. um and Isis, no hard feelings about this. Yeah, you know, your your brother husband has slept with your sister. Doesn't seem too phased by this, and brings Anubis up. So she's his stepmother. It's kind. And then when Osiris gets killed by yeah. Seth, and we'll come to this when we talk about Isis, um, Anubis is the it wraps him up and embalms him and and makes uh, makes Osiris into the first mummy. Yes, he's the god of mummy. He's the god of embalmment. So he yeah. invents the mummy. Basically, and I think that's the, the the key story. But I agree. I mean, aside from that, I think he's not very interesting. Whereas Isis is a lot more interesting. I think Anubis um, has an immense appeal to children because of his yes, dog, because like, of his dog head, dog head. And, and also, he hasn't. He's appeared in loads of kind of films, hasn't he? In computer games, and well, he's just become a sort of emblem of ancient Egypt. Yes, um, in a way that's probably not true of. I mean, how many Egyptian gods? Egyptian gods are fascinating, but how many of them do people remember? Three, four. And Anubis is always one of them because of the, yeah. the canine. Appearance. And Horus, I guess, is the other because he's got a head of a hawk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So my son made a you know, Horus costume. For his, so when he was, we didn't get him in. I, when he was doing what I did when I was five or six, uh, he made a Horus costume. I made an Anubis. Did you ever make an Egyptian costume, Tom? No, I didn't. I missed out on this rite of passage. Yeah, I missed out it's on obviously it. obviously a Midlands thing. <laughs> <laughs> Must be. Must be. Yes. All right. So Anubis okay. was defeated in very controversial circumstances. I think when we have future World Cups, there will clearly have to be a code of conduct about the judges or the, the organisers well, not I, getting I, I involved did, I in... I did what I did for the, for the benefit of the sport. Well, that's Seb Latter. I mean, that's what Seb Latter says. Fine. Yeah. That's what Florentino Perez says at Real Madrid. The yeah, Super well, League. You know, uh, the sport, c'est moi. Yeah, clearly. Um, all right. Let's do one more God before the break. Um, and let's do Apollo. So it's Apollo against Odin. Yeah, Apollo against Odin. Now, Apollo to me... And Odin won. Is, is the, so, quite comfortably. Yeah, I mean, I surprisingly comfortably. Now, Apollo to me is the absolute epitome of a Greek god. I mean, he yes. is the statue that, 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 that seems to symbolise ancient Greece. And yet, what is it about him, I wonder? Is it a blandness, a perceived blandness that meant that he... He's not bland, though. I mean, he's terrifying. Well, I don't think he's bland, but obviously people, uh, the voters, didn't go for him. I think I think Odin is is a kind of very popular figure because he's again he's got that kind of slight computer game yeah. edge to him, which um, Apollo doesn't really have. Which Apollo doesn't, and I think also Apollo is kind of associated with a slightly chilly eighteenth century classicism. Yeah, that's what I meant. I guess. By so, fans, so in yeah. the, I guess in the kind of the eighteenth century, the, the Apollo Belvedere was seen as being the most beautiful statue in the world, and nobody now rates it at all. Um, but of course. Um, Actually, Apollo was a, was a terrifying god. So Why terrifying? The, Why do you think? Well, terrifying? he's the god of plague for starters. So, okay, that is terrifying. You know, having gone through the past year, um, yeah, it's it's Apollo's plague arrows that have been raining down on us. Um, you know, that's what the Iliad begins with is is Apollo raining down plague oh, arrows on yeah. on the on the Greek camp. Um, he's also the you know he's the father of Asclepius, who's the god of healing. So. Again, you get that kind of weird tension Dualism, that we yeah. see again through, you know, in all these gods. Um, and he's the god of um, of prophecy. Yeah. Um, 
but you Delphine. know, we, we again we talked about this before. The way in, so he's one of his um, epithets is Loxias, which is kind of the oblique god. Um, so anything he tells you is likely to trick you. Um, the Loxias element to him. Then. No, I, 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 no, because I think it's it's not setting out to deceive you. It's factored in. It's kind of like right. a crossword puzzle. Okay, um, and the the Greeks were puzzled by the people of who had other oracles that when they got their oracles, they just took them, you know, they just took them straight. Whereas the Greeks knew that Apollo's comments, utterances, yeah. had to be read quite carefully. And if you didn't get them properly, then you'd probably come a cropper. And this is the Oracle of Delphi. So does the Apollo cult begin at Delphi or does Delphi just adopt him? Well, there's two, there are two great cult centers. There's Delphi is one and Delos yeah. is the other. And Delos is where Apollo and his... um twin sister the equally terrifying artemis the virgin huntress are born um and it's said that delos was um kind of floating around and then it gets anchored when when they're born um and the thing that's interesting about both delos and delphi is that they're effectively neutral so that's something that you don't get with other greek gods so it's not um, associated with a particular power but a city-state yeah so so both of those they, they almost have a kind of missionary quality that's very you know exceptional in in the greek context and it means that both delphi and delos become neutral spaces where people from different cities can meet up um but as you say apollo i think for that reason becomes the archetype of the greek god because he's you know he's he's with zeus he's kind of a properly universal one um but then the weird thing is that he's you know the epitome of the greek god but in the trojan war in the iliad he's on the side of the trojans not the greeks what's all that about because the Trojans in in the Iliad are seen as basically being belonging to the same world as the because they're part of the Greek world, yeah. and he just happens to be on their side rather than the yeah. Achaeans or whatever they're called. Yeah, I mean, talking of the Trojan War, of course, um, you know, there's a terrible warning there about picking gods and crowning one as the victor, because that's yeah. what basically starts the whole shebang. Um, let's hope so that um, let's yes. hope that that doesn't. One more question about Apollo. Oh yeah, um, he has this habit of pursuing people who then turn into plants. Or- <laughs> Isn't that right, Hyacinth? He does. Yes, he does. Well, so we had um, one of the we we had the um, peerless Jonathan Wilson doing yeah. providing sensational punditry. But we also had in the semi-finals we had commentary from Llewellyn Morgan, the great Ovidian scholar, whose um, short introduction to Ovid is really fantastic, highly recommended. And he makes the point in that that a lot about a lot of what we think of as being uh, Greek mythology is actually Ovidian mythology because Ovid, the great Roman poet, takes these stories and packages them as a kind of single entity. And he's obsessed with people changing form. And he yeah. writes this whole poem about it. Metamorphosis, um, yeah. And uh, yes, all the nymphs that Apollo is changing and they're kind of turning into laurel trees or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's absolutely a constant. Um, but that's basically coming from Ovid, and from that it then passes into Ovid's huge influence on so Shakespeare. The, the Greek and, Apollo is not—he's not molesting all these people who become trees. Well, he that's kind of not, is. I mean, there are these stories, but it gets packaged right. in a way that um, uh, then gets taken out around the world uh, by Ovid. So it's kind of okay. like you know the Beatles absorbing all these various traditions and packaging them in a way that people yeah. can consume. Okay, uh, the Beatles have made their. Um, Long expected appearance on the podcast <laughs> oh, about dear. ancient gods. Yes, uh, and on that note, card is filling uh, up. Yeah. On that note, we'll take a break and we will come back uh, to discuss the four semi finalists after the break. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to The Rest is History. We've now reached the semi-final stage of the World Cup of Gods. There are four contenders left, and they are Dionysus, Isis, Athena, and Odin. So, Tom, let's do the, the, the two gods who would have ended up in the third, fourth place yeah. playoff, the bronze medal match that nobody ever wants to play in. Um, and they are Dionysus, lost and pr- lost comfortably to Athena. Dionysus is a very interesting god, isn't he? So he's the son of Zeus and Persephone, is that right? Semele. I think there are different, are there not different, well, there are different accounts of all these gods, um, often of their origins. He's the god of wine, he's the god of theatre, um, and of course associated with the Dionysian mysteries and with the Bacchus cult in Rome. So again, is Bacchus and, Bacchus and Dionysus, are they the same? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the Bacantes are people who follow Dionysus in kind of ecstatic rituals yeah. um, and is the theme of Euripides' great play, The Bacchae, yeah. um, which describes how Dionysus comes to Thebes and the king of Thebes tries to basically chase him off. So it's it's kind of like, the, I suppose, the, the, the police trying to stop, you know, ravers having yeah. raves in fields. Um, but uh, Dionysus isn't having any of that. And um, he... He goes disguised as a woman, so he, Dionysus's followers, the maenads, are, are are women who get possessed and incredibly violent and ecstatic. Um, and so uh, Pentheus, the king of Thebes, goes there disguised as a, as a maenad, um, but he gets discovered, and his own um, mother tears him to pieces, um, and that teaches him to try and stop. Yeah, that would teach having, you a lesson. Having a drunken orgy, so yeah. So in the public mind, Dionysus is the god of drunken orgies. Is that is there more to him than that, do you think? Well, I don't know if you've read Roberto Classo's Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony. I have not. It's a wonderful book about the Greek gods, very inimitable. Um, and he, my favourite sentence in that book is as follows. Dionysus's phallus is more hallucinogenic than coercive. Okay. <laughs> um, so talk me through that. <laughs> Well, he's 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 a very erotic god. Yeah. Um, He uh, the Sicyonians we are told worshipped him as lord of the female sex. So he, um, it's said that he's the one whose fingers can can make it vibrate like the strings of a lyre. So that is one of his one of his superpowers. Yeah. Um. But the other superpower, obviously, is that um, he can bring his followers into a kind of ecstatic, altered state. Yeah. So you get uh, sexual fulfillment, but you also um, kind of leave, you know, the diurnal tedium of your everyday life behind and and enter this kind of ecstasy state. But isn't there something, as the Euripides story suggests, something there's a kind of a, a more sinister side to this? I mean, weren't yeah, people sure. alarmed even at the time about that sort of Dionysian cult and the Dionysian? The Romans certainly were. So the Romans yeah. ban it. Yeah, they, they, they regard it as, as, as sinister and dangerous. And obviously, there's an element, you know, strong element of that in, in Euripides as well. Um, but there's also a sense that Dionysus represents aspects of human character that it is folly to repress. Right. Um, so the id, he's pure id, basically. Yeah, and, and that's terms. what underpins uh, Nietzsche's famous essay on the birth of tragedy, where he he counterpoints Dionysus with Apollo um, as the kind of the yin and yang of, of Greek culture. Um, another very interesting aspect of Dionysus is that the story goes that he um, originally comes from India 
and he he comes with a kind of great invasion force uh, not not soldiers but you know girls in leopard skins and satires with vine leaves and things like that but he brings elephants uh, and it was said that there was a, a that lots of these elephants died on the battle of of on the island of Samos in in the um uh, eastern aegean and what's interesting is that the skeletons of pleistocene um mastodons have been found there that's interesting um, and so adrian mayer who's written a wonderful book about kind of uh classical paleontology yeah. says that it's the first example that she can think of of people correctly identifying a fossil as belonging to you know the, they identify these fossils as elephants and construct the myth around it they're very interesting there's also an interesting story that when alexander of macedon goes east to india um he the, the macedonians find places where dionysus is worshipped and they think that dionysus has climbed these rocks and yeah all this sort of thing so that there is clearly a sense in the Greek world that there is the Indian that Dionysus has something to do with yeah, things that are going on further yeah. east. Isn't there also a, uh, there are some Dionysus stories in which Dionysus is killed and reborn, and yeah. some some scholars have said, well, this you know he's part of a kind of continuum with Osiris, who's also killed and reborn, and of course Jesus, who's the same story. Um, do you buy that? Well, also, also um, his mother gets incinerated um, because she gets tricked into asking Zeus to reveal. Um, himself in his full glory and she gets kind of shriveled up and Zeus rescues um, Dionysus who's a little baby in the womb yeah uh, and implants it in his own thigh so that's that's, that's another kind of weird unusual do you know about Dionysus's association with Scotland no so um, in 1282 and in Inverkeithing the local vicar organized a Dionysian um, revel did all the, persuaded the women of the village to join him in a Dionysian rite or and, some and, such. And what happened? Uh, a Christian mob killed him. Right. Well, fair enough. I mean, yeah. I think you're asking for trouble if you. 13th you century imagine. Scotland holding Dionysian revels. I think, yeah, you're. it's a risk, <laughs> it's really isn't cold it? apart from anything else. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. So, anyway, Dionysius, that wasn't enough. The Scottish vote wasn't enough to get him over the line. In fact, he lost very comfortably uh, in the end. And so that was the end of him. And the other semi final loser. To your great sorrow, I imagine, given your stated position, was Isis. No, I was, I was fine. I just wanted to see her get to the semis. Isis is a very, very interesting god, isn't she? She's a massive god. She's, an, she's a god who's part of this Egyptian kind of pantheon, as it were, not they call it a pantheon. She's the wife of Osiris and the mother of Horus. But as time goes on, she becomes bigger and bigger. She becomes yes. a sort of Apple computers or a Microsoft <laughs> yeah. of gods. She's, she's a startup that has just gone. Yeah. You know, become in, imperial, so that by the end of the sort of sort of ancient Egypt, the Ptolemaic period, she is one of the Mediterranean's absolute. You know, she's the Coke or the Levi's. She's a colossal brand, isn't she? She is, and she appears all over the Roman Empire. Um, and there's uh, a kind of ecstatic account in um, the Golden Ass by Apuleius, which is the 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 only kind of surviving law. La- Roman novel in its entirety yeah. uh, and this is this guy Lucius who gets turned into an ass uh, and that's what he does throughout the course of the novel and then at the end he he prays to um, to Isis and she turns him back into uh, his human shape and he then goes on to become a massive devotee of the uh, uh, of Isis and he shaves his head and is absolutely proud to, to go around bald Right. Um, and then at the end, he has a, a, another vision of Isis. Um, 
And although we're not given the full details of this, because this is a secret that you you can't reveal it. It's it's a, literally a mystery. Um, yeah. Nevertheless, it's it's fascinating because it's one of the very, very, I think maybe even the only one really that gives you a sense of kind of the ecstatic sense of identification that a worshipper of, of, of a god in you know the roman period might was capable of feeling so it's it's a counterpoint to the the sense of of cults as being purely you know civic and transactional yeah um and and i think that um the story that we get uh, that we get told about isis and the reason why isis and osiris and anubis and seth and all those guys kind of do have a cut through in a way that perhaps other egyptian gods don't is that it it gets told by plutarch the um Greek writer of the second century AD, uh, and and he basically gives it to us as the equivalent of a kind of you know Greek myth, and so he gives us this story about how Isis is married to Osiris, Osiris's brother Seth kills Osiris, um, Anubis then embalms him, um, Seth sends the, um, the the coffin that he's been put into flowing down the Nile, ends up in Phoenicia. Demeter goes and, and, and sources it, rescues Osiris, brings him back to life fleetingly, has sex with him, gets him, Osiris gets her pregnant with Horus before going off to become Lord of the Underworld. Horus grows up and then kind of chases Seth away. And yeah. that's a story like we get in Greek mythology. Well, you and, and you by and large, talk- we don't get that kind of stuff otherwise in Egyptian mythology, which is why I think it has less resonance with people than, say, Greek myths. You made a, a slip there, which I thought was really revealing, which is why I didn't correct it because it's really interesting. You called her Demeter, um, ah, and I? Isis and Demeter have been identified course, as yes. as similar, haven't they? I mean, they play a similar yes. part. Well, so what happens when Isis goes to get um, uh, the to, to source the, uh, the 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 tomb of? Osiris is that she pretends to be a nursemaid um, for the, the prince of um, where is it? I think it's Biblos or Tyre, one of them. Right. Um, and she wants to give the son of the prince of Tyre immortality, and so she prepares him and is going to put him in the fire. Um, and the you know she's surprised doing this, so she has to reveal who she is. And a very similar story is told of Demeter at the time when she's roaming the world looking for her daughter Persephone, who's been abducted by Hades, yeah. the god of the dead, and taken So do you think the, the Demeter cult is basically the Greeks? Because the Isis cult is obviously older. Have the Greeks, probably through merchants or whatever, picked up the Isis cult? And, and do you think? Very difficult to know, and the Greeks themselves weren't sure. So there are lots of theories about that, the relationship of the Greek gods to the, um, to the Egyptian gods. So Herodotus, yeah. who's the first person really to write about Egyptian gods, absolutely clear that uh, the Egyptian gods come first and the Greek gods are kind of pale echoes of the Egyptian gods. Whereas for us, it, you know, it's often the other way around. The, the Greek gods are much more vivid in our imaginings. But that's the, because the of the sources. It's not because they're yeah. more... Yeah. I, so I don't know is the answer. Um, it, it may be there's a kind of direct influence, but I think also it's the fact that um, people in antiquity are prone to accepting that... Um, everyone essentially is worshipping the same kind of gods. It's just that they manifest themselves in different yeah. ways. They're more ecumenical, weirdly, than, than we yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so therefore, if you're a Greek uh, going to Egypt, you're going to um, you know, identify, say, Amun or Ra with, with Zeus. Uh, you're going yeah. to identify Isis with Demeter, um, rather like the Romans do as well. Well, then there's this period, isn't there, Tom, where, which is fascinating, which we haven't massively talked about, um, of, of, of pure sort of syncretism. When the Greeks are running Egypt, 
So when the, Ptolem- the Ptolemaic family, the Macedon- this, these Macedonian Greeks are running Egypt, and then they, they actually go out of their way politically to identify, you know, uh, Greek gods and Egyptian gods, because it obviously suits them. It suits their sort of empire building project. And they invent one, Serapis. Yes. Who, who we were thinking perhaps should, should have been included, but, but wasn't. But I mean, he's completely, <laughs> completely made up kind of fusion of Greek and Egyptian elements. But that raises a really interesting question, doesn't it? That, they, that again, a bit like we were talking about Augustus on the last podcast and about how including him sort of, it, it, um, it, it, it changes the way you think about the division between mortal and immortal, the sort of slightly simplistic way that we might think of it today. I mean, clearly, they don't think there's anything wrong with inventing a god. I think, I think we bring a, a you know, and I've said this before, and I'm sure I'll say it again, but we bring a Christian perspective, and we find I never it very would have imagined you would say that. The, the, the very idea of kind of gathering all these together as pagan gods is a, is yeah. a Christian perspective, and you know, in the last podcast, we we talked about how the, the way in which gods become dead. You know, Christianity is like a kind of radiation leak, killing them off. Yeah, and Islam, uh, and we we see them through those through that prism, I think. And one last thing about um, ISIS. So ISIS is very political because Cleopatra the seventh, the famous Cleopatra, she takes the title the new ISIS and she dresses up as ISIS, and this is all part of proclaiming her legitimacy, but it's also linking herself to this incredibly successful cult. And Octavian Augustus, who we talked about in the last podcast, um, he tries to to sort of keep this out well, of mind. He casts himself he? as Apollo. Does he? I didn't know that. Yeah, That's so Antony had identified himself with Dionysus. Yes. Uh, Octavian identifies himself with Apollo and, and Cleopatra is going the full Isis. Uh, but then when he wins, he, he says, let's not have any Isis temples in Rome. And the Senate is very hostile to the Isis cult. Is that because it's seen as too Egyptian? It's sort of, yeah. sort of orientalizing. And... Yeah, but it comes, it, it's there. I mean, by, by, um, by the, uh, the end of, um, so by 69 AD, the year of the four emperors after Nero, um, there's a, there's a, a there are priests of Isis everywhere and they get embroiled in um, a kind of punch up that ends up with the incineration of the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitol. So um, they're, they're absolutely a part of it. And yeah. actually, um, the very the worship of Isis carries on into the reign of Justinian, the great Christian emperor of the sixth century who builds Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. There's a temple to Isis at Philae, which is kind of you know right the, the bottom of the, the, the south of Egypt, uh, an island in the Nile. Um, that's that's only closed then. So she goes on a very very long way. Very long time. And what do you um, think of this argument among some comparative sort of scholars that the relationship between Isis and Horus is sort of paving the way for the relationship between Mary and Jesus? I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure it, it, that that um, there's a, you know if you're if you're having statues of of Isis suckling Horus, um, it's not a great leap then to. Yeah. And you're, you know, it's 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 not that um, Christians are kind of stealing it. It's just that it's the the kind of the the emotional fulfilment that you get, I guess, from identifying with with Mary, has been prefigured by the emotional yeah. identification that generations of generations of people have had from looking at ISIS. Yeah, and the sort of the idea, I suppose, is just there in the ether, isn't it, of the mother yeah. and child? I mean, it's just yeah. part of the cultural conversation. Um, okay, so ISIS, I mean, there was a similar margin in the two semifinals. ISIS also got knocked out. I think, frankly, she did well to make the semis. Uh, she's very interesting. <laughs> she's an interesting god, though. She's a very, I don't, I don't begrudge her, her, her place in the last four. I think she's a, and I, I think it was great actually to have somebody who, 
um, from out of the sort of the traditional sort of superpowers of Greece yes. and and the Norse yeah. world, and somebody who you know worshipped across the Mediterranean and stuff. So let's get to the final: Athena versus Odin. I think Athena was our number one seed, so yeah. we clearly always saw this coming. Odin, I think I can't remember what he he was seeded about five or six, wasn't he? Um, uh, who should we do first? Let's do Odin. Let's do first, Odin. First, he was yeah. the runner-up. Yeah. So Odin was beaten. It was very a very tight result. Fifty exciting match. Fifty-two forty-eight. Athena yeah. got off to an early lead. Odin et into it by not by enough. Um, we can, and it was it was forty-eight fifty-two. So yeah, I mean, very Romain leave. Um, but the roles reversed because I think Odin had a bit of a lever kind of. Yeah, he's you know, yeah, definitely. He's sort of, uh, you know, he's all about plucking out his eye and uh, <laughs> sort of, which they they're all doing. Um, well, he's Sunderland very, and the Brexit heart. Well, he's very sort of, he's very red meat, isn't he, Odin? He's, um, he is, yeah. He's um, he's Woden or Wotan. Uh, Tacitus didn't Tacitus equate him with Mercury, which seems a very odd. Yeah, I mean, they're all all over the place. I mean, yeah. So in his form as as, as Woden. Of course, he's given his name to Wednesday. Yeah, and, uh, and he's the ancestor of the in, Queen, uh, West Midlands, and the ancestor of the Queen. Yeah, Be- who is descended from Woden then among the Queen's ancestors? The House of Wessex, is and it? Queen- yeah, so the Queen's, you know, trace her ancestry back to Alfred, and Alfred can trace his ancestry back to Curdic, who's the first of the uh, West Saxon kings, supposedly. Yeah, uh, and he can trace his ancestry all the way back to Woden. So Prince Philip was. Who got knocked out in the first round? He did have family connections in the tournament, which is nice. Well, he married he married the descendant of a goddess. Yeah, that's that's good. And that's one that's one of the reasons why I'd be sad to personally see the monarchy go is because I love the idea of having of being ruled by you know having a head of state who's descended from a god. Yeah. Um, so so not just haven't gods, got that, have they? A god's vicegerent on earth, but the representative of but the descendants of another god. So yeah. Macron Macron calls himself Jupiter. Does he? But we know that he does he. Mortal. Yeah, he does Macron call himself Jupiter? Yeah, he does. How do we know that? It's all over the place. Oh my word, French! Um, but but we we have, you know, our head of state is descended from a god. But yeah. Woden is quite boring because we don't really know anything about him. So Whereas hold on, Odin. Woden. So Odin and Woden, it's the same thing. But but Odin is the name is the Viking name for him. Yeah, and he's um, eye plucking out um, to yeah, make himself so wiser. Great. Yeah. Uh, he wounds himself with the spear. It's very sort of fisher. He hangs himself from a from from a tree. Is, is it yes. Idrisil? Yeah. yeah, probably. Well, it's a it's a rootless tree, and so people assume it is. And he hangs himself there for nine days, nine nine nights, and this wins him wisdom. Right. Yes. And the other way he gets wisdom, yes. So the eye plucking. Yeah. So the the well of Mimir, and he plucks out his eye, and then is able to drink from the water so he absorbs this this um all this wisdom and then Mimir is who's a kind of giant spirit yeah. kind of guy has he he dies and so Odin chops his head off and carries it around with him uh and consults the head of Mimir whenever he needs something so it's a bit like an iPhone I guess <laughs> so it's a kind of oh you're always looking at your head a Norse iPhone yes. yeah yeah um and well, that re- I mean, okay, so that's pretty gory. And the sort of the the, the image that the, the in the in the popular imagination is that the Greek gods are all about kind of strumming lyres and drinking wine and sort of admiring. Grapes. Well, Odin, there's a brilliant line on on wine alone does weapon glorious Odin live. On wine alone, so yeah. So that's a oh, that's quite surprising. So he's yeah. not all about meat halls and and beer. 
Um, he had that as well. There's a more sophisticated side to him that we don't often see. But this is my question. The, this, in the public imagination, the life of the Vikings or the life of the, the northern peoples um, before the coming of Christianity was very nasty, brutish and short. It's always raining and they're always killing each other. And that therefore their gods are similarly violent and their mythological world is similarly bleak in contrast to the more sort of louche ways of the Mediterranean gods. Do you think that's true or is that just a sort of silly think, stereotype? Well, the, the, Mediter- the, the classical gods are, are pretty terrifying, as yeah. I'm sure we'll t- talk about when we come to Athena. I mean, they, you know, they kill a lot of people. I mean, basically, they start the Trojan War just because they're bored. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a, there's a lot of death. So, um, so but but Odin, Odin is a, is a very, uh, yes, I mean, I think he's, you know, he's the, the, the lord of the, of the Valkyries who, you know, there's kind of t- terrifying descriptions of them um, stretching out intestines across battlefields as though they're the threads on a loom. I mean, kind of terrifying images. And Odin himself, um, he... So one of the other ways in which he he gets wisdom is to sit under under people who've been hanged. So yeah. That's, so he clearly absorbs wisdom from the experience of human suffering, and you've just got to look at the list of names. So there's a fabulous book by Neil Price. Uh, I think it's called The Viking Way. Oh is, yes, that's the predecessor uh, to his Children pre- of Ashen. It's really yeah. brilliant, really, really brilliant. I, and I read it in uh, as a PDF before it had been properly published. And and it was kind of like a Samizdat work that people were handing around. And he his argument is that this is all about kind of shamanism, that you, you yeah. have to get into a heightened state. Um, and Odin, um, he lists all the names that Odin has been given in all the various epics and the runes and whatever. And he there are over 200. So I noted down some of them. You've got Father of the Slain, Lord of Treachery, Screamer, The Hooded One, Battle Wolf, Evil Worker, Lord of the Dead, Hang jaw, nourisher of carrion eaters, lord of the hanged. Wow, I'd like some of them on my tombstone. And that's yeah. not somebody you want to mess with. No, no, that's very impressive. But he, of course, he and does come he's to got a very. Pets, hasn't he? Well, he's got ravens. He's got what else has he got? He's got um... ra- two ravens who were both called Thought. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's got his his eight legged horse Sleipnir, and he's got yes. two wolves, Frecky, and brilliantly Jerry. <laughs> Jerry. If I had a wolf, I'd call him Jerry. I think. Actually, I think it's Gary, but but it's funnier if it's Jerry. Um, and he, but he comes to a. I mean, none of that avails him much because he's eaten by a wolf himself. Yeah, Fenrir, isn't he? Fenrir. Yeah. So he the comes son, to the son of Loki. That, and this is again quite unusual in the Norse cosmology, isn't it? Because we don't have a sense of how the Greek, the Greek sort of cosmos will end, but we do have that with the Norse gods a sense of apocalypse, looming apocalypse. I mean, there's no sense that for Apollo, it's all going to turn horribly nasty one day and no. it'll come to a hideous end. Whereas for all the Norse gods, we know precisely what's going to happen to them and it's never very pleasant. And you'd assume that that's an authentic tradition. I mean, the the, the complication is that the, the account of Ragnarok, you know, the end of the gods, comes much later, is written by a, a Christian writer. And so... To what extent has this been mediated through Christian takes on the apocalypse and the end yeah. of the world? Um, and, and we don't know. Um, and but so Odin does, you know, like like so many gods, fades before the coming of Christianity. But there is a um, um, in Iceland there are kind of charm formulas that continue to to mention Odin right the way into the early modern period. And even in um, uh, in Sweden there are kind of folk memories of him. Not as a god, but as someone who I think 
you know, if he appears, he he will bring you wealth. He's a kind of devil, a, a okay. demon. Yeah. So he he kind of leaves trace elements there. There's all the stuff about him leading the wild hunt as well, isn't there? Particularly, well, in that's kind of more yes, Germany. perhaps, but hugely contested. Right. Um, so it may not be the same thing. Yeah. Well, may not we, be the same Odin. Yeah. It, I mean, all that. So, so Odin essentially then gets reinvented in the 19th century. Yeah. Um. And of course, gets adopted by the Nazis, so he's very popular with neo Nazis. Um, I think the the guy who wore the the bison head who broke into the capital has he's done the Viking gods no favors. Yeah, no, he hasn't. I think he had all kinds of Odin tattoos and stuff. Did he? Um, he's the man who had when he was imprisoned in Arizona or New Mexico or wherever it was. His mother made a great fuss and said he had to have vegan food. Do you see that organic food? Oh, right. Okay. Well, Odin wouldn't <laughs> no, go any truck with that. No, he wouldn't. Well, anyway, Odin put up a very, very strong showing. Uh, he got forty-eight percent of the vote, but it wasn't enough because he was up against the number one seed, Mary Beard's choice before the tournament, Athena. Uh, Athena won. I was a bit disappointed, Tom. If I can why were you quite... disappointed? I I wanted Athena to win. Did you? I didn't. She's my patron goddess. I didn't want Athena to win. Um, I was a bit disappointed because I thought she was a bit of an obvious choice. Um, I, 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 you will be horrified by this uh, because you're going to now tell me this is completely a mis- complete misreading. I find Athena a bit colourless. Um, I am I, horrified. Yeah, to me, she's just a bit too mainstream. She's, <laughs> she's. I like a niche god. I like kind of music. I oh. like a yeah. She's the <laughs> Coldplay. Just... She's Coldplay. Yeah, she's. You liked her before she... Before she was... I saw her when she was you saw her she, Before yeah. she became famous. Uh, I saw her at the Civic Hall in Northampton. Great. She's the embodied... I mean, she's, she's again, a bit like Ishtar. She's fuses w- warfare with the arts of civilization. So she's wisdom and, and war. And uh, war. And, and is it right? Am I, am I right in thinking she takes her name from Athens rather than the other way around? Probably. She began as the civic yeah. god of Ath- uh, goddess probably, of Athens. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, we don't know. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so she gives her name to Athens. She's the patron of Athens. Her, her name is, is the same as Athens. Um, and she is the presiding genius of the golden age of the democracy. And actually, it it's impossible to understand the significance of democracy without understanding the relationship that the Athenians had with Athena. Why? Because what well, has she got to do with it. So, so what you'll hear about Athenian democracy, and it's always said, is um, it wasn't real democracy because only men, uh, you know, free men yeah. had the, had the vote. What about the women? Um, and what about the slaves? The thing is that that Athena is the is is the the guarantor of the. Um, relationship that the Athenians have with their past and with their future. And the, the demos, the, the power that's vested in the demos, the demos is the totality of every Athenian that's lived and will live. And um, you have to have been born on the soil of Attica because that's sacred to Athena. So you can't be an Athenian if you're you're born elsewhere. You, you were literally born from the soil, you're autochthonous. Um and therefore, it's as important to keep Athena on board as it is to sit in the assembly and draw up laws. So the role of men is to sit in the assembly and draw up laws. The role of women basically is to keep Athena happy. And for the Athenians, that's just as significant. You, so the, uh, so female listeners who will say, well, that just sounds like typical men making, a, making up a reason to keep women sort of in their place. 
you you'd say that's not true at all. That's actually that's, that that's they, a very twenty first century perspective. Yeah, and it's the, and it's a, it's a perspective again that ultimately comes from Christianity that says that every human being is of equal value and equal right. That's not how the the, the Greeks saw it. The Greeks saw it in, in a very very different way. So when we 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 assume we think of democracy as a kind of abstract principle that everyone yeah. should have a vote because everybody has an equal value, and that therefore if you're saying that women can't have the vote, then you're saying that women have are, are less less valuable, that their opinions are less valuable, that their rights are less significant. Um, for the Athenians, it's it's about keeping the demos on the road, and you do what you do to ensure that happens. So the men draw up the laws and they go off and fight to defend the, de- to defend the demos. And the, the, the women have this relationship with Athena and they, they do the necessary rituals that will keep Athena on board, which likewise is just as important. But it's so you've got to kind of put yourself into the shoes of someone for whom Athena is a, a, a powerful, terrifying, um, but ultimately wooable figure. Why terrifying, Tom? Why, well, you've said that a few a, times. She kills a lot of people. Okay. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the classic one is um, that, that any, anyone basically who, who calls her out, she, she kills or turns into spiders. So Arachne, <laughs> the, yeah. the maiden who claims that she's um, better at weaving than Athena. And Athena zaps her into a spider. Um, uh, and she's, she's merciless to those who offend her equally. And this is why I think she's a great god. And why I think that she corresponds to something kind of fundamental in the nature of, of the way that life is. You know, she has people she hates and she has her favourites. And <laughs> that seems true to life. Yeah. There are people who have a kind of golden existence. Um, and of course, her most famous favourite is Odysseus. Yes, because she's cropped up again and again, doesn't she, in the Odyssey and also in the Iliad. She's very, very close to her protégés in a way that other gods aren't. Other gods are kind of more distant. But yeah. Athena is always at their ear, kind of whispering in them. There's a wonderful collection of short stories about the Odyssey uh, called the uh, the Lost Books of the Odyssey by Zachary Mason, and there's a, a great story in that where Athena is secretly in love with Odysseus, and she, she tells Odysseus that she's in love with him, and Odysseus laughs, and she then vanishes. She goes bright red and vanishes. Very affecting. Oh, nice. Highly recommended. Um, she's a virgin, isn't she? She's a virgin. Yes. Um, and so, do you think there's a link? And we've talked a, a few times in, about this about links with Christianity or with subsequent religions. Is there a link with the Virgin Mary? Do you think? Well, her t- her shrine, the most famous shrine, Temple Parthenos, Parthenon, uh, the Virgin, the the kind of the Virgin's Temple, um, becomes the the church dedicated to the Virgin um, in the Christian period. Um, and what's what's also interesting is that um, Athena guards the walls of Athens. So when Athens yeah. is, is is attacked, she can be seen walking the walls, patrolling it. I know where you're going to what you're going to say, Constantinople. So in Constantinople, the Virgin is seen. Yeah protecting Constantinople when, when when the city is under siege. And that's a tradition that then passes into um, the folklore that's told about the defence of Moscow in the Second World War, because it's yes. said that Stalin sends up an icon of the Virgin in a plane that flies around the city limits of Moscow. So there's a yeah. kind of, you know, there is a, a, you know, these kind of strange inheritances that pass down through the centuries. So I think Athena's a wonderful, wonderful okay. god and a worthy winner, and I'm very happy that she... You're with uh, Sigmund Freud on that, because didn't Sigmund Freud have a sculpture of Athena on his desk? Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, um, I certainly have. Uh, you're very similar people in many ways. Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> um, Wonderful so, on which to end. So that concluded the World Cup of Gods. Athena was the champion. Tom, what have you learned from this uh, this process, as Alan Sugar would call it? That, um, that uh, gods are very weird and that um, we tend to have a very one-track sense of what gods should be, that 
um, the diversity of belief over the course of the centuries and because the span of the globe um, undermines. Yeah. I mean, you think there's lots of continuities, but uh, people don't dress up in other people's inverted skins no. anymore, do they, as the no. Totec? No. I mean, no. I still think uh, it's a tragedy that Prince Philip didn't win. Would have been very good for Britain, good for the Queen. Nice uh, in the tough time, but it wasn't to be. Clearly, the, the public thought otherwise, and the voters, I suppose, are never wrong. So Athena was the champion, and um, we'll have to do another World Cup in a few months. Tom, got any ideas? I think uh, Kings and Queens of Britain. I think it would be brilliant. Brilliant. Maybe American uh, presidents. Um, okay. Jolly good. To look forward to. We shall... Uh, we've got some great episodes coming up. We've got Magna Carta coming up. We've got Mohammed. Which is topical because he was a great toppler of idols. So, yes. Uh, in a way, a kind of perfect follow-up to this. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.